Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want my Good morning, everybody. We'll get rid of this. Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel, 3CR's look at the Australian film industry. And that lately we've been, uh, there's been a huge flock of uh, Australian films that have been uh, shown, uh, you know, appearing at the uh, cinemas. And uh, so I've had the great opportunity to have chats with different people about their films and the making of their films. And there's been a broad spectrum, I'll have to say. One of the big stirs this week has been the uh, big uh, openings, or, well, the media screenings, but it was opening slightly later in the month. This is uh, Mel Gibson's latest di- directorial uh feature that uh, features a whole lot of American but also a lot of Australian actors and was shot, oh, I think uh, probably here rather than over there because uh, of his uh, past misdemeanours. I think he's had to come and find, regroup in uh, this side of the world. Uh, Anyway, uh, the film, of course, is Hacksaw Ridge, which, as far as I can make out, is a kind of revisiting of 1950s American war movies, but uh, you'll have to wait for on screen to hear my review of it. But uh, the word is that uh, because there's so many elements that are Australian uh, in terms of the production, rather than it's an American story, but uh, that they think that it's going to sweep the pools at their next uh, actor awards in Australia. So, uh, you know, if you want to have an opinion... That film is uh, the one that everyone's is on people's lips, but that's not the one I'm going to follow up today. The one I'm going to follow up today is a great film called uh, "The Boys in the Trees," which is a a lovely, fantastical sort of adolescent coming of age Australian film, which has been put together, directed, and written by Nicholas Verso, who, uh, as you'll hear from the little chat that I had with Nick. Uh, I've actually spoken to him before in his earlier incarnation of uh, a short film, uh, which was incredibly impressive. Now, this is a lovely... uh, This feature was uh, great, and the person I went with was thanked me deeply for having taken them to see this film, which they may not have seen except because I took them. So that just gets to tell you just what a lovely, sweet and very interesting film this is, Boys in the Trees. So let's uh, move on and quickly and forget all about my little ravings and 
go to the chat with Nicholas Verso, who's a delightful young man. It's actually quite delightful to see you, Nick. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, since the last time I spoke to you, you uh, it was a long time ago, but it was after you'd first done your, uh, I think it was the uh, short. Oh, yeah, last time I saw Richard. Yes, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. And it was the precursor, really, to this film, I think, you know, The Boys in the Trees. Yeah, originally they were really meant to be kind of the one story, you know, and the last time I saw Richard was a prequel to Boys in the Trees. But I think during the making of both the short and the feature, they sort of grew apart a little um, and they kind of shifted in tone. So even though they both have a character called Jonah with a red hoodie, they're kind of slightly separate now, slightly different stories. Yeah, and when you say tonality, that uh, does really uh, hold, hold true to the type of filmmaker you are because I was reading that you were interested, and it comes across, I have to say, in people like Neil Gaiman and Ray Bradbury, and uh, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) They just uh, set you on fire, those guys, and uh, there's something about the way, I mean, I was thinking about uh, uh, The Boys in the Trees. In a funny kind of way, it's a a little bit like um, the uh, uh, East of Eden as well. It's got that certain quality to it, where they're in the night and they're talking um, about who they are in a way that's completely divorced from the society that they live in. Yeah, and, and I mean, a big influence was also Richard Linklater, you know, the films like Dazed and Confused, but also, you know, the Before Sunrise films where, you know, those beautiful moments you have in life where you, you're you out walking the streets with somebody and you have these big philosophical conversations as you try to work out who you are and who you want to be. And it's something you do, especially as a teenager and sort of in your early 20s, I think, as you get older, you sort of, I don't know, I think you sort of work who you are. Well, work out who you are a little bit or you get... You well, don't, you don't get the chance. Yeah, well, that's it. Sometimes you're just too busy with work and with family and all those other things that get in the way. But as a teenager, you do have that space to wander. I've got this theory that uh, everybody has to have one year where they talk all the time. <laughs> they talk all the time that. in that way. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think, yeah, I think you really do. And, and that's why in this film, the teenagers... They're really kind of verbose, you know, they really talk a lot because do. you do, you know, and and I think some people are surprised by that. They're used to teenagers being monosyllabic, whereas I kind of liked, you know, that Richard Linklater model or Kevin Williamson films or John Hughes where the teenagers, you know, they're pensive and, and thoughtful. Yeah. Well, actually, I hadn't thought, uh, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about that. I did actually think that they were verbose, but I think what most people don't seem to realise is that they're monosyllabic to the people that are asking them questions all the time, not necessarily to each other. Yeah, exactly. I think that's it, especially if it's a question they don't want to answer. They'll shut down pretty quickly. But when they're alone together, you know, then they, they'll really open up. Which is what this film's about, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. And it's why it's set in the 90s, you know, because I wanted to get away from technology. I didn't want them texting each other or being interrupted by all the interruptions of technology in the modern era, you know. And I thought back and I thought to 1997, that last time before everyone had email accounts and Facebook and mobile phones – And I thought, oh, this is when the teenagers can really just be with each other and really just talk and work out who they are and wander the streets and and only be a few blocks from home but be utterly lost too. Mm. There were some fantastic uh, realisations of the zombie-like adults. (laughs) That was a great little motif. Yeah, no, it's a fun little mood, especially in the second half. The film does move into some quite surreal spaces and it was really fun conjuring up those, those images. And it's a country town? 
Well, we shot in Adelaide, and um, and it is interesting because Adelaide is a town that a lot of people leave when they turn eighteen. You know, they do tend to sort of move off to bigger cities, and so yeah, and so it's funny because a lot of people don't recognise it, but even we do have big wide shots of Adelaide, but I guess we're not used to seeing that skyline. As no, much. that was what was interesting because I was actually brought up in a country town, so I had this. I I, I understand that sensibility of the wide streets and nobody there, and you taking taking the streets, as it were, while nobody else is there. And then there were, every so often, some elusive little shots that were obviously city, obviously urban. But in a funny kind of way, people who live in suburbs live in towns too. Well, totally. Like if you live out, you know, I mean, Box Hill is very much its own world, you know, and and Williamstown. I grew up in Williamstown, so that was my little bubble. But I went to school in Kew, so I was, you know, I would go between these two very different bubbles of suburbia that are all both very self-contained worlds. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, um, how did you actually? So you've you've it's taken you a while to get this whole f- feature completed, right? So, how did, tell me the steps. How did yeah, it work so you? I wrote it back in two thousand and eleven, and it won an award back then, which was great in New York. So we got to have a reading at the Lincoln Center in New York. Which oh, fantastic! Very exciting. Um, and so, and then, and Mushroom Pictures optioned it immediately, and you know they're wonderful. They did Wolf Creek and Chopper, and so that was a real incredible honour that they picked it up. And then the oh, first got a good nose. Yeah, well, Gudinski is very supportive of new talent, and John Malloy, who runs the film arm, is very brave and passionate about new talent as well. And so for a while there, nothing too much happened with it. We decided to make the short film last time I saw Richard, and that took up a lot of our energy and time. And then they made the Molly miniseries, which did incredibly well earlier this year. And so then when we started raising the money, we found that a lot of the doors we thought would be open were very much closed to us (laughs) because people just weren't used to making a film like this in Australia. It was just a little too out there, a little left of centre. And so it took a little convincing. But then we, thanks to Gadinsky and some other private investors and the South Australian Film Corporation, they all came aboard and supported this film. And then once we'd shot it, we showed it to Screen Australia and they really liked it then, you know, then it made sense to them because on the page it was very hard to see some of these images and imagine the music because there's so oh, much Oh, let's go to the music. music. Yeah. The music's fantastic. <laughs> Your choices are fantastic. Well, they're all... Are you putting out a soundtrack? I know that sounds like I don't buy soundtracks, but I would buy this soundtrack. Yeah, we are. October 21st, we've got two soundtracks coming out. We've got one that's The Score by Shinjuku Thief, the great Melbourne artist, and the other one is The Song. So, you know, Yoko Ono and Garbage and Bush and Ramstein and all those songs will be on that, which is great. And, you know, like I'm a DJ as well, so I play at the Perseverance on Brunswick Street every Friday night playing 90s stuff. And so I've seen how much there's this new generation loving 90s music. And so the songs really mattered a lot to me. And luckily Mushroom particularly responded well to that because... A lot of the artists in the film are theirs, you know, like uh, the Mavises and artists like that. So, well, it's it's incredible, actually. It's the 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 level of skill uh, and choice in that soundtrack is just fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I really wanted to get that bit right because I'm so passionate about music, and and it's great watching audiences respond to that and watch. You can see that it take people back in time. The songs are real time machines. Well, it, 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 actually, I don't recognise many of them because it's not my era, but um, I didn't care, and that was the point. It was the emotional cleverness and also doing radio. What was uh, The other thing that was fantastic about the way you used the music was that it, it was uh, – 
it reflected the emotion so perfectly because that's what sound does. It creates emotion, but it didn't. It was. It was. It was almost like it was another person in the play. Yeah, oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. And yeah, because I think sound is so subliminal, and you know, it affects your mood. You know, the the tone of somebody's voice or the music that they put on, it really affects you. And sometimes you're not aware how much. And so yeah, so the songs. It was very crucial that they be just right to fit the characters' moods and the emotion of where we're at in the film at that moment. Well, it works. And uh, so who who helped you with the sound? Well, so I had written all those songs into the script pretty much. So nearly all those songs were ones I knew I wanted. And some of them we had A options and B options, you know, in case we couldn't get something. But most of the time we got what we wanted. The hardest nut to crack was Marilyn Manson. <laughs> he was a little resistant, but I wrote him a long, long personal letter explaining what the, what his song The Beautiful People meant to me and why I wanted it in the film. And he said yes, which was delightful. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, he And he strikes me as a person, oh, and you just confirmed it, of being just like that. Well, that's what I thought, you know, like I thought because it was all going through agents and managers and I thought, well, this probably isn't how he works, you know, because his work has been so misinterpreted and condemned over the years for various reasons, whereas if you just talk to him person to person, I'm sure he would listen and I'm sure he would be on the same page and luckily he was. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. He's a, And that actually is an interesting correlation with your film because... Uh, he is a person that speaks to obviously lots and lots and lots of people, but yes. he is maligned. And I'm not saying your film's maligned, but the characters within this uh, film are uh, trying to self-express, but they're also trying to define themselves, uh, survive, literally survive, physically as well as emotionally in the bubble that they're in. Well, that's it. You know, I think, you know, he speaks to the freaks and the outcasts and the people who don't necessarily fit in. And I think this film is for them, you know, and so and this film is about just trying to survive when you don't feel you fit in. And, um, you know, particularly for Jonah, but for Corey as well, who's who's been very good at surviving high school and made some decisions that probably aren't the kindest ones in order to make sure that he his head stays low and that he doesn't get the the abuse that some people face in those high school corridors. Yeah, yeah, and and they're they're dangerous places. Well, that's it, and we're seeing be. it more and more with cyberbullying and, you know, kids can be attacked in lots of different ways now that they couldn't in the 90s. So, yeah, I think it's very eternal. <laughs> Tune in to On Screen and find out more about what's on the big and the small screen each Saturday, 11am till 12 noon on 3CR. It's a program on film, on filmmakers and on film festivals. It's called On Screen, mm, but it's on the radio, 3CR. You're on 3CR and this is Showreel, 3CR's look at Australian film or focus on Australian film and today we're having a chat with Nicholas Verso whose uh, film Boys in the Trees is going to be screening at cinemas around the place starting October the 20th. And uh, we'll continue with our chat with Nicholas.
What about the actors? Now, I saw uh, the guy who plays the lead. Toby Wallace. To- Toby Wallace. I saw him in the oh. film, the one that was made in Canberra. Oh, Galore. I really like Galore, but for some reason or other it disappeared without much of a trace, which I find really surprising. Uh, and he's really developed. He's become a very strong actor. Oh, Toby's just a dream. He's so wonderful. Like, And I'd worked with him on last time I saw Richard, and I knew I just – he's so lovely. He's so open-hearted and very brave. Like, he's he's not afraid to go into very dark places, and but he always has such good humour, and he does it in a very accessible way. You know, he's, he's one of those boys that – the guys want to hang out with and the girls want to date. You know? Yeah, well, <laughs> he's very a, handsome. Yeah, it's a real skill to be able to do all of those things. And um, and so to have him be the lead, I, th- I th- thought was great because he's a great way in for the audience. He would be a character that people would want to walk with. And yeah, and it is interesting with films like Galore because I think lately a lot of Australian films have fallen through the cracks a bit. Some really great films. That was a great film. Yeah, and they're just not getting in front of the audiences that they deserve because we sometimes just don't have those marketing budgets to people just don't even know they're out there sometimes or can't get to the cinema in time. So yeah, so it is great that... um, He's still working, and that he's he's just continuing to mature and advance. And well, that's right. You've given a whole range of people a chance to do that. And uh, the fellow who plays the other oh Jonah Jonah McGrath, yeah yeah. Well, he's actually uh, looking at it. He's uh, had quite a broad range of experiences. Well, yeah, as a child actor, he worked a lot in Hollywood with some, you know, huge directors like Tim Burton and Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. So, yeah, this was kind of his first really big role, you know, like to step up and um yeah, so it was an interesting challenge for him and but I think it was great that he was around all these other teenagers like Mitzi Rawman who plays Romany and Justin Holber who plays Django, you know, these and yeah, they were a really interesting unit, you know, and watching the the different relationships and friendships form as we were filming. It was very much reality mirroring art. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So how long was the shoot? It was five weeks in Adelaide and a lot of it's the bulk of it was at night. So a lot of 6pm starts and going through till sunrise. Yeah. And, and of course, all film shoots, you're in your own bubble. Oh, totally. And because we weren't from Adelaide, it was actually really great. You know, it was really nice being away from home and family and friends because you were just in the world and you couldn't really think of anything else but Halloween 1997. That's right. Did you get exhausted? No, actually, I, I, it was really funny. I was worried I would, and yeah. but I was just so excited and so enjoying it because I think one of the things when you've wanted something for so long, when you're finally there, you're incredibly grateful, you know, and so even when things were bad, I was still going, I'm very lucky to be here and to get my shot. So, so yeah. you're, you're the sort of person that spins straw into gold, aren't you? <laughs> I try to. I hope to. Yeah, no, but I that's hope how to you feel it. that way, oh. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I right. hope to spin those experiences into something positive. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Because uh, uh, I mean, I remember thinking at the time, the last time I spoke to you, that I expected. Th- that's what directing is, isn't it? It's it's about uh, not just uh, create making something from a book into a film. It's a film is actually a landscape of light and shade that creates uh, a feeling that uh, is going to take you further than you were before. Well, that's it, because you're trying to get audiences to believe in a flickering light beam. Do you know what I mean? You're trying to get them to to cry or to laugh or to believe that this flickering light beam is, is a true thing and, and, and to really step inside it. So, yeah, so for me, 
even though this film is very fantastical and seems at times quite surreal and out there, it's very much just based... And I have to tell you, they don't fly, but you almost think they will. Yeah, yeah. well, that's it. You don't know how far it's going to go at times. Um, but for me, it was all really grounded in, in how I felt growing up and the emotions that I felt that I knew and trying to share that with an audience and um, finding a, a common ground between me and the audience. And I, I was thinking uh, it was actually quite... A pivotal, well, it was a pivotal moment, moment, but it was also something that I don't think has actually been said in film before in relation to young boys becoming men, that they not, that he didn't want to be, be cruel. I thought yeah. that was such a fantastic piece of knowledge in that film. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a really important moment to me because I think sometimes, particularly as a boy or, you know, girls as well, you know, in high school, sometimes you do things just to survive and sometimes the end doesn't justify the means and you've got to look at your actions and go, is it worth it, you know, to be cruel? You know, is it worth this, you know, it, surely there's another way. And I think like right now, as we look at the world and our politics and things going on, is it worth it? you know, if if we're really hurting somebody else, you know, to hold on to something. Now, you've had uh, uh, um, the good fortune of this film having an American beginning in a sense, but also you've taken it's, – it's actually at core a very Australian story, but obviously it's it has legs in America as well. Yeah, well, it was funny that very early on when I first wrote the script, there were people who were interested in financing it if I rewrote it to set it in America and set it in Washington State or Maine or something like that. But I really didn't want to. For me, it was really important that this be grounded in Australia and that this be a film that celebrates Australian youth, particularly if you grew up in the 90s. But even if you didn't, you know, for today's teenagers, just to celebrate how we grow up, because we watch so many American films that celebrate their rites of passage. And we always have, you know, John Hughes and Spielberg and all those, The Craft, all those films do that. But we don't often get to really just rejoice in what it means to grow up in our suburbs. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to have fun with it. And so it was really important to me that that be honoured. And then, and it's now lovely sharing that with America. Like it's the other way around now and going, well, this is how we do it. What do you think? And they're, they're liking it, which is great. They find it, they're enjoying the, the, the difference of it. Yeah. So you had a big opening last night. Yeah, so we had our big opening at the Jam Factory last night, which was wonderful and really, you know, it's a, it was a crazy to me being at the Jam Factory, the cinema I go to all the time and watch films and there I am, you know, having my own poster there in standees and, you know, because, you know, like I, I'm still a little kid at heart, you know, who gets excited every time he goes to the movies and the lights go down, you know, I can't wait to see what world I'm going to be sent into and so to have it be your own and and you know last night was special because it was family and friends as well you know whereas the other screenings so far have been in cities where I don't know people and so they're just strangers whereas now it's with the people who it's really made for oh how did they react great yeah it was well it was so funny because a lot of my friends were there who I grew up with and they got little references and little winks and nods that are in there and um so yeah and so they and yeah, they got it on a on a different level to the way they got it in Venice or Busan, you know. So oh, that that's fantastic! Great. That's really fine. Yeah, 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 it's a, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah, it would be. And uh, so after your season here, where does it, where does it go? Well, yeah, so we open in cinemas October 20 um, and we'll be going around to capital cities and doing Q&As. And, and for me, I really want to go out to high schools as well and get it in front of teenagers and really get their response to it. I, I want to hear from them and, and show it to them and get them to meet the cast and, you know, just let them know that 
these stories can be made in Australia, you know, and open up that next wave. And then uh, after that, who knows? Like we know that it'll probably be coming out in America early next year and yeah, hopefully other countries as well. But we're, we're screening in other film festivals. We're going to Rio de Janeiro and Stockholm and uh, Texas, Austin. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's getting out there in very strange corners of the world, which is delightful. Yeah, great fun for you too. Great way to see the world. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, whenever I get invited, I go. Unfortunately, oh, yes. I don't get to go to Rio, but um, but a lot of the other places I, I get to go to. It was wonderful being in Korea. And, yeah, and How did they like it? They loved it. You know, I mean, Korea, there's such great Korean cinema right now yeah, there with is. The Handmaiden and The Wailing yeah. and Train to Busan. And um, and they really like films that are a little out there. So they went with it. And um, yeah, they were they were such a, a wonderful, infectious audience. Oh, yeah. that's really lovely. What, what are your plans after this? Because, I mean, I know that's almost, I mean, look, you've probably just gone, ha, huh, yeah, I finished this. Oh, yeah, no, but everyone wants to know what's next, you know, yeah. so, and, and you have to think that way. So, you know, I've got a couple. Do you of, think that way? Yeah, you know, I'm always trying to think a few steps ahead. So I've got a couple of projects and, you know, with some are with Mushroom Pictures. And so hopefully there's a project in particular that might be shooting winter next year, which would be wonderful because I just want to get back on set ASAP. That, that, I just want to keep telling yeah. stories now. It took yeah. so long to get here. I just want to keep going. But then there's also some stuff in America, you know, and we'll see if that happens, you know, I'd love it if it did, you know, because I'd love to work there too and find a way to bridge the Pacific and, you know, have a foot in each world. Oh, that would be fantastic. Oh, well, we'll look with great interest, Nick. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks for coming in. Thank you. My name's Molly Reynolds and I make documentaries like Another Country and I support 3CR because it is a radio station that once you start listening to, you can't stop. And that's the end of the show. Hopefully you are intrigued enough to go off and uh, see Nicholas Verso's film, The Boys in the Trees. It's a terrific film and uh, it certainly uh, returns the favour if you go and pay your, your dosh to go and see it. Uh, I'm, I doff my hat to you. Uh, coming up next is uh, Published or Not. We're going to go out with It Ain't the Wind, It's the Ra, Mary Gaultier. It's a, quite a feisty song, so enjoy it. There's a big storm coming Of this I've no doubt That storm's gonna blow Yeah, little world inside out When the wild winds let up When the violence wanes You'll think of me then When you're watching it rain You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.